message through Galatians, but I just want to start with a story this morning. Some of us have been to Sunday school in the past, and some of us have been Sunday school teachers in the past, so we know what it's like trying to communicate truths with children. There's this one day a Sunday school teacher asked her lower uh, age children in kindergarten what it would mean to get into heaven. She said this, if I sold my house and my car, if I had a big garage sale and gave all my money to the church, would that get me into heaven? And the kindergarten class were well taught. They yelled out, no! Okay. The teacher then asked, okay, if I cleaned the church every day, mowed the yard and kept everything neat and tidy, would that get me into heaven? Yes, no. But the kids answered, no! She asked them again, well, if I was kind to animals and gave sweets to children and, uh, and loved my husband, would that get me into heaven? And guess what they answered? No. So, she said, how can I get into heaven? And one little five-year-old said, before you get to heaven, you've got to be dead first. That's wisdom of a five-year-old, isn't it? But he was right. He was right. There's nothing that, out of all those things that she said, would get her into heaven. She had to be dead first. A lot of people don't think about that. They don't think about it, do they? They think, you know, if I do all the right things, if I live the right way, I'll get to heaven. But the answer is no. It's the same as that question, how good enough do you have to be to get into heaven? We've looked at this before. Let's think about it this. How good do you have to be to go to heaven? Here's your choices. Do you have a multiple choice answer? A is pretty good. B is really good. C is better than Uncle Bill. And D is you have to be perfect. What's the choice? The correct answer is D. Who can do it? Nobody. Nobody can. Nobody can do it. If you want to get to heaven, you have to be perfect. But you can't be perfect. Because God gives the rules and he's given the rules in the Old Testament, in the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, it's the Torah, it's the laws and he's given the Ten Commandments and even when Jesus spoke with the rich young ruler he said, I've done everything that the law requires and Jesus said, virtually he said it's not good enough because 80% won't get you in, will it? 99% won't get you in and yet the majority of the world believes that Either A, being pretty good, being really good or better than Uncle Bill or the neighbour next door or the rallies that are really awful, you'll get into heaven. It's not true. There's no easy pass mark. It's whether you're better than people down the street or better than Uncle Bill or Auntie Betty or whatever. But it's what God does that makes the difference. It's what God does that makes the difference. When God makes a comparison, he doesn't compare us to other people, guess who he compares us to? His son, the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is the pass mark, if you like. None of us are perfect. In fact, the Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, we have all sinned and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. None of us can make it by our own means. It's only through God's answer. We're going to answer this question as we move through the sermon this morning, we're going to answer this question, what does it take to get us into heaven? Because Paul, as he was going through the book of Galatians, as he's writing the letter to the Galatians, he was getting to the point that they had forgotten about. 
that, the, that they couldn't do enough to get into heaven. It was only through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, I looked at the, um, the way that Paul wrote his letter to the book of Galatians. And remember, we're, we're on this journey this year, being set free, discovering our freedom in Christ. And certainly today we're looking at Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. So we're looking at living free in Christ. What does it mean to live free in Christ for us? And Paul had some concerns about the Galatian believers. That's why he wrote the letter. We need to take note of some of his concerns because the same things are happening today and we need to address them in our lives. You would have remembered right back at the beginning, I looked at how Paul wrote his letter and he we have it in chapters and verses. He just wrote it as one long letter. But he made some emphases along the way. And certainly in the first couple of chapters was the personal section or it was, the, it was the, his qualifications, his, his, um, um, uh, what gives him the right to speak this way and to write this way into the lives of the Galatians. So talked about that he was a, an apostle out of time, that, that, that Jesus met him on the road uh, uh, to Damascus, that, that Jesus taught him all the truths about the gospel and that when he went back to the Jerusalem elders they were preaching the same thing which is really good. So he started off by, by, by writing his qualifications and how he had permission or authority if you like to, to write the rest of this letter. This next section is the doctrinal or theological center section. Don't let that frighten you. It is a bit, bit uh, heavy if you like but we're going to dig pretty deep to have a look at some of the things in this section of the letter and we're going to see how they apply to us today because the same things are happening that Paul was writing to the Galatians about. And then the last two chapters of what we have as the book of Galatians or his letter, it's the practical section. How do we apply these truths to our lives? So we'll do a little bit of that through these next couple of chapters but, but really we're getting to the crux of why he wrote the letter in the first place. There's going to be some verses that are intricate and some arguments that we might not understand but I'll try and explain them the best we can because they were a Jewish or a Greek way of thinking but, but I'll see if I can... But there's one thing, one central question that Paul returns to all the time. Are we saved by what we do or by what Christ has done for us? Now in hindsight we can look back and answer that question but the Galatians were struggling with it and sometimes I think we even struggle with it today in our, uh, in our churches and in our personal lives. So all the time, Paul comes back to this underlying question. Are we saved? Do we know uh, salvation from sin by what we do or by what Christ has done for us? Now this might be a familiar message for you. Don't just glaze over and go to sleep during the middle of this message because there are people that we'll come across in our interaction with other Christians and with other people who don't believe this. So we have to make sure that we are well grounded and we are firm on this fact. It's, it's faith versus works. Belief versus what I can do. It's, it's, it's um, grace versus being obedient to the law of Moses. That's where Paul's coming from. That's the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is at stake for the Galatians and sometimes for us today too. So in, in Galatians chapter 3, the verse, first 14 verses, Paul puts forward three arguments, three arguments, we're going to look at three uh, main arguments this morning, that will lead us back to that, quest, that key question, how are we saved? Are we saved through grace 
Are we saved grace by faith or are we saved by works? And remember that equation we looked at a couple of weeks ago? Uh, grace uh, plus faith equals works or, or uh, salvation is, is uh, grace plus faith equals salvation. Then the works come. Salvation comes out of the works, not the other way around. So let's have a look at this. So Paul's going to look at three things. going to look at, in this passage, we look at uh, human experience. What does human experience tells us, tell us? What does the example of Abraham, the father, one of the fathers of the Jews, tell us? And what does the curse in the law tell us? So these are unusual terms for us to think about, but hopefully I'll explain them a little bit more today. So we're going to see how Paul develops these thoughts out. So I've, used, I've called them the arguments. So first one we're going to look at is Paul uses an argument that grace is what's important more than works from his experience and from their experience. Because he's talking to um, Christian uh, believers in Galatians. So verses 1 to 5, read this. He says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed and crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, by the works of the law or by believing what you had heard? That's what he was asking them. Verse 3, Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain, is his question. So again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you'd heard? Can you see he's coming back to that question all the time in these first five verses. So interesting what some of the commentators say about these verses. Um, J.B. Phillips, he's a Bible translator of many years ago, where it says uh, in verse 1, let's see if I've got it up here, you foolish Galatians, he says, oh dear idiots. Now, I don't know how many letters you'd receive like that, but that would probably turn me off if I read that. But he was saying it in compassion. Another writer, I think it's uh, Peterson in the message, he says, you crazy Galatians, wake up to yourselves. And one writer suggests the word numbskulls. Yeah, you're brain dead because you're acting this way even though you knew the truth from before. So there, there are some consequences. And he goes on to say, it's as if you've been bewitched. And that's, that's like a, a um, black magic term of the day where they were given the evil eye or they were put, put a hex on them because their lives were not showing out what they had previously believed. So Paul was saying, I don't understand what's going on for you. How else do you explain leaving the freedom that you have in grace, the grace of God, to be bound up again in the law of Moses? So, so Paul was saying, I can't get my head around it. It's inconceivable that you've taken this journey. What's happened in your lives, basically, he's saying. Now I've come across some people in our community, who I've known for a long time, and they've taken some dramatic turns in their lives. And my first question to them is, what's different now to when I knew you 10 years ago? What's changed your mind? 
that things that I knew you were against and that you took a strong voice against, now you're just accepting it willy-nilly. What's changed? I don't call them crazy people or I don't call them idiots, not like Paul did in his writing, but that's what I'm thinking. Why have you changed? Why have you changed your thinking? So Paul's saying that to them. So there's some consequences. The first consequence is that they were ignoring the cross of Christ and going back to the law. He says, you foolish Christians, Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Now, most of these people wouldn't have seen Jesus at his crucifixion, but, but the understanding here is that, that they'd forgotten how clearly Paul, in his initial visit to their town, had portrayed the crucifixion of Christ. I could imagine that it was fairly graphic. I could imagine it was fairly painful as they heard this. But they had forgotten that. They would put it aside. They had abandoned the grace that was shown to them. For some reason, they were ignoring the cross. He goes on, the second consequences, he says, they were contradicting their own experience. He says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? And the answer was, by believing what they heard. But he was asking them questions. Your own experience, are you ignoring that? Are you ignoring what you've known to be true? He reminded them that they had been saved by grace through faith. Why would they now think that they have to do add-ons, they have to do plus this, faith plus this, faith plus this? He couldn't understand it and he was trying to get them to understand it as well. You've probably heard some people, and sadly I've heard some Christian people say this, God helps those who help themselves. Have you ever heard that? What Bible verse is that? It's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. God has done it all for us. And that very thought is crazy, is stupid. So if you hear somebody say that, my first response is, so which chapter and verse is that of the Bible? Find it for me, will you? Because if it's not there, I don't believe it. And they can't. But they're trying to justify their position in changing away from the grace of God through faith alone in Jesus to doing these add-on extras to what it means to be a Christian. Their suffering was meaningless. For some of these Galatian believers, they'd been kicked out of their homes because of their faith in Jesus. Their backs, they'd been, uh, people had turned their backs on them because of their faith in Jesus. They were no longer involved in the society practices which were very uh, selfish and and full of um, uh, hedonism or or, or not honouring to God, they'd turned their back on it and they had suffered because of that. They'd lost friends, they'd been kicked out by families. He said, all that suffering is meaningless if you go back to trying to earn your salvation now. From their experience, had they given up on what they believed to be true. And then lastly, They were denying the work of the Spirit who had already been active in their midst. And Paul says there in verse 5, So again I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what what you heard? And obviously it's the second one, by believing what they've heard. And God had done miracles among them. Some of them personally 
had been touched by the Spirit of God. Some of them had seen the power of God both in the life of their church and external to the life of their church. Prayers had been answered, problems had been solved, old habits had been broken, all those sort of things. But ultimately, they'd been saved from the consequences of sin. And somehow, they'd been convinced to put that aside and to start to go back to follow the works of the Lord. Paul was saying all these things in this part of of his letter to remind them all of the wonderful things God had done for them in their conversion and in the days since then, which somehow they had forgotten. They had come to to Christ by God's grace and through faith, not by following the law, not by doing the add-ons. And had they forgotten that? Because there was a group of people that were going around the uh, newer churches of the time saying that, oh, you have to remember the Jewish history. You have to remember the Old Testament. You have to do those practices. That was the thing that Paul was writing against here. And we have to be careful that we're not hearing things, seeing things, watching things that are telling us anything other than we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. They should put a check mark or a question in our hearts and minds if we hear anything other than that. So he uses this argument from experience. He was telling them to look at what they already had experienced in life through coming to faith in Jesus. And one of the arguments was from the Judaizers who were, who were Jewish Christians from Israel who were coming under no authority to these new churches and saying, oh, you must practice circumcision as well. That was what they were, that they were saying, which was an Old Testament practice. So he addresses in his letter the next section about the... Um, argument from Abraham. So they were Jew, they were, the people that were coming were Jews, the people that were coming to were not necessarily Jews, they were Gentiles, but they were saying that you must abide by these things too. So he, he says, well, what about Abraham? What about Abraham? Let's look. So also, Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. He said that to Abraham. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So I think he was writing this in his letter to correct the misinformation that these Judaizers were bringing, but he was also writing, I think, he had an underlying reason for writing that they might hear it too and they might understand that what they were teaching was incorrect. But certainly for the Galatian believers, he was trying to show them that Abraham was very real in their history and he's real in our history too today because he was a man of faith. What does verse 6 say? So also Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. So, so Abraham was acceptable to God because of his faith, because he believed in him alone. Because he believed in him alone. This happened, if you're familiar with your Old Testament book, this happened in Genesis chapter 15. Where, and the chronology is important because Abraham was circumcised later in Genesis 17. So for the Jewish, the Judaizers that were coming saying, you must be circumcised to be acceptable to God. If they had pushed it to the letter, Abraham wouldn't have been accepted by them because he was actually acceptable to God before he was circumcised. The law then that they were promoting 
was given 430 years later by Moses. So even Abraham wasn't under the law. He was in a faith relationship with God. So here these Judaizers are saying, no, you must have, yes, believe in Jesus by all means, but you must practice the law as well. You see the difficulty? The confusion that they were thrown into? Paul expanded this in verse 17, verse 7, he says, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. What was in Paul's mind was spiritual descendancy is important, not physical descendancy. Just because you're a Jew, just because somewhere in your heritage is the person of Abraham, that doesn't make you acceptable to God. What makes you acceptable to God is that spiritual descendancy through faith in Christ alone. That's what he was hammering home. He hammers this home over and over again in this letter. I wonder, is there any of us who remember the song? I think Julie did it with us some time ago in church here. Father Abraham has many sons, many sons as Father Abraham. Do you remember it? I am one of them, so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. We do right with yeah, all right. We're going to sing it now. No, we're not. And I always thought about that song. You know, why are the kids learning this? It's a great song. It's a fun song. It's an action song. And that's why we learn it. But do you know, in my planning for this sermon, I realise it's actually true. There's those children who are singing it or anybody who's singing it are saying that he's our father because he had faith in God first and that was credited to him as righteousness. That's exactly our situation, isn't it? Abraham didn't have to do anything to be acceptable to God. He had to be obedient, sure. But, but what made him acceptable was his faith. What makes us acceptable is our faith in Christ. So Father Abraham truly is true for us too. And so Paul goes on in verses 8 and 9 and he tries to uh, declare God's plan from the beginning. Right from the beginning was to, was to justify and include Gentiles, non-Jews, in the faith. It says there, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. How do we know that's true? Do you remember what God's original promises to Abraham were? He made three promises. Do you remember what they were? This is a pop quiz. He promised the land. He promised he would take them back to the promised land. The second one was he promised that he had many descendants that he'd be the father of all nations. And the third one was that they would be a blessing to the whole earth. We are a part of that third promise. We are part of the promise that God made to Abraham, that the blessing would come to all the nations through him and his descendants. I want you to zip ahead 2,000 years to the Gospel of Matthew and in the first verse of the Gospel of Matthew, this is what it reads. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now it's true he was a Jew and that Abraham and David were part of his genealogy. But both those guys were clear men of faith. And that's really what Matthew's writing about. Not just the human genealogy, but the faith genealogy. He was a true son of Abraham in the literal sense that he descended from the line of Abraham, but he also, in that sense of faith, he was a part of that faith journey as well. And before Jesus went back to heaven, he gave the disciples and 
us that command to go and preach the gospel to every nation. So the blessing would be to all the nations of the world. That's our challenge. That's our, that's our mission as well. So the Great Commission joins with the call of Abraham, if you like, to be a mission to the world to declare Christ. It's always God's plan that Gentiles, non-Jews, will be justified by faith in Christ alone. And that's what Paul's getting back to in these passages. There's some important things to draw out of this. The first thing is that salvation is by grace through faith. Does that sunk in yet? You'll hear that over and over in these sermons. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. And even when God's people were under the law of Moses, it was still grace through faith. Still grace through faith. They, they, the reason why they took sacrifices to the temple was so that God would forgive them. It was still grace shown to them. The second thing that we come out of this is God's plan is still for all the nations and there's no room in God's plan for racism or for bigotry or for prejudice in the church of Jesus Christ. And I'm so glad that as a church we have people from many different cultural backgrounds that come and are part of the church or visit the church. God loves and has always wanted to save all people. In fact, he wants to see a time when there's people from all tribes and nations and tongues gathered together worshipping him. That's the ultimate in heaven, isn't it? And the third uh, thing that comes from this declaration of salvation by great uh, faith alone is that it's the foundation for world mission. So we have a reason to tell people about Jesus because God's always wanted to draw every nation into his family, into his church, if you like. And that's why we send missionaries out to all places around the world. That's why the gospel isn't just for one nation or one country or one people. It's for all people. Go into the world and preach the good news to all creation is what we're to do. Alright, the third argument that Paul uses in this letter is an argument from the curse. And that's a word that we don't use much anymore. But certainly they understood it. And from these verses in verse 10 through to 14. For all who rely on the works of the law, remember that he's talking about the law of Moses, the Old Testament, the first five chapters of what we have as the Bible, are under a curse as it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So that was actually written into the Old Testament, into those law law books. That if you don't do everything, then you are cursed. Verse 11, Paul goes on to say, Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith, not the law keepers. Verse 12, the law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. It's practical living, not faith living, is what the law says. And it goes on, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We just sang about that, didn't we? For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole or on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. I wonder 
what God is saying to us today about that. Paul used a a really strong word here, the word curse. There's some things that we need to understand. If people say, oh no, you need to keep the Ten Commandments, that's great, the Ten Commandments are good, but if you don't, what's the end result? I don't care. doesn't matter if you fail on one level. That's not what the Bible says. Let's have a look at this. Verse 10, Paul says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. The law demands performance. You must do what the law demands. If you don't do what the law demands, then you won't be acceptable to God. That's what the Old Testament taught. Secondly, the law demands performance in all of its commands. But, you know, if I just miss out on one, no. If you're going to follow the ways of the law, as in the law of Moses, then you must do it all to be acceptable to God. It commands continual, complete performance. It says you must do. It says there, curses everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Don't know about you, but I fail on all points because I just haven't done everything that the, the Ten Commandments say. So it's not a choice of going along to a, a, a buffet table at a cafeteria and say, I'll choose this part of the law or I'll choose that part of the law. Or I'll choose. No. What Paul's saying, it's all or nothing. You can't choose bits and pieces of it. Either you keep the law all the time or the option is you'll never get to heaven by keeping the law. When it comes to being saved by the law, it's not an 80% pass mark. It's an all or nothing. That's what Paul was trying to emphasise to his readers, to his listeners. He used a strong word. That word is cursed. That word, he says that they are under divine judgement if they don't fulfil all the law. So he's trying to show the people that what they've heard in this misleading teaching has eternal consequences if they want to go that way. It means that God rejects them. He judges them. He condemns them. He sentences them to eternal death if they choose to follow the law of Moses alone. And that applies to everyone. You know, I've spoken to people who say, oh yeah, I keep the Ten Commandments. I say, do you really have no other God, God than the one God? No, 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 don't do that one. Because they make gods of other things. And the whole human race is under a curse because we haven't been able to keep that law perfectly. The good news is that God provides the way of salvation. And that's what we've always got to come to. Why? Because the just shall live by faith is what he promised Abraham, what he said to Abraham. And it's what he says to us. By faith we receive the promises of the Holy Spirit and all that he leads us into in the truth of God's word. God gives us salvation simply on faith in Jesus alone. And the answer is in verse 13 where he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse. So we don't have to worry about the curse because we've been redeemed by it when we put our faith in Jesus alone. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole or hung on a tree. Deuteronomy chapter 23, 21 to 23, uh, that verse 13 quotes. And in that time, 
in the Old Testament, criminals were often put to death by stoning, but as a symbol to the rest of the community not to do the awful things they did, they were hung on a pole or hung on a, on a tree for everybody to see that they were guilty. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. When he died, he took the curse of sin, the punishment of sin, which was intended for us. He took the pain. He took the suffering, which was intended for us. He drank the cup of God's wrath against sin. He suffered for our sin. He paid the debt that we now don't owe anymore. And that's what grace means. For, for us, the cross is the true watershed or dividing line in history. It's, it's, it's the hinge point of history. It's whatever comes after the cross is separated from what went before the cross. And that's something for us to remember that if we're hearing any teaching or if we're listening to anything and it doesn't honour Christ on the cross or Christ risen from the dead, then we have to question what that teaching is about. All that God has done to save us comes because of what Jesus did on the cross. And I wonder if we've accepted that gift of salvation individually. Have we said Jesus died for me? Have we said Jesus died for my sin and my disobedience? That's the choice we need to make. So Paul uses these arguments to, in his letter to say, this is why you need to believe in the grace of God. Trust the grace of God. If we did it by our own means, <laughs> one writer, uh, D.L. Moody, he was a preacher, he was a pastor, he was a principal of a Bible college, well they set up a college in his name rather, he said this, I am so glad we are not saved by our good works because I don't want to sit in heaven listening to people brag about how they got there. That's just not going to happen, is it? The only thing we'll be saying is we are in heaven because of what Christ has done for us. That's the only way. Let's not be considered foolish or idiots or crazy like the Galatians were when Paul was writing to them. Let's not be led astray by thinking that we can do something to achieve our salvation. Our salvation is achieved through faith in Christ alone. There's a response, a willingness to serve, a willingness to obey, but that comes after we put our faith in Jesus. And that's what Paul was calling the Galatians back to. It's what we need to call ourselves back to. If there's things that are distracting us away from the, one, the central aspect of who Jesus is and what he's done, we need to put them aside, come back to that and make sure we're right where God wants us to be. Now, he will lead us into mission. He'll lead us into service. He'll lead us into uh, supporting people and caring for people. But it comes out of the result of that, faith in Christ, Christ alone, not leading us into acceptance with God. Like I said, we're, we're in the doctrinal section, we're in the theological section. Some of these things are familiar to us, some of them are, are new, but we really have to be sure that this is what we know. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, Paul's writings. We thank you for the way you led him by your spirit to address the issues. And these were important issues in the life of the churches in the Galatian region. Father, because uh, some false teaching was going around. And Lord, there's just so much in our world today that will try and distract us away from the truth of your word and the truth of who Jesus is and what you've done for us. Father, I pray that we'll be clear.
I pray that we'll always come back to your word and check out what we're hearing and make sure it's in alignment and, and agrees with your word. Then we can go full steam Father, because we want to be doing what you want us to do. We thank you for your grace and mercy shown to us. We thank you for the plan that you have for each of us as we follow Jesus down. We thank you for your spirit who gives us the strength and the power and the energy to live out our lives in obedience to Jesus. We thank you for all this today and we give you the praise and the glory. Amen.